Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Hello and welcome to our annual Year in Review conversation on the Leadership Under Fire Humanizing the Narrative podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. In this episode, I'm joined by LUF founder Jason Bresler and LUF's human performance advisor, Jim McNamara. A quick note for those who want to learn more about Jason and Jim, you can listen to episodes number five and 12 on this podcast for interviews featuring both of them. As 2022 comes to a close, we have much to reflect on. It was a tumultuous year as war returned to Europe and major fluctuations in the economy were felt across the nation. Work trends continued to shift, even as 2022 seemed to mark the beginning of the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. And sadly, we lost loved ones this past year, including those close to the LUF network. We continue to honor their memory and remain optimistic about the future, ready to face 2023 to include the good, the bad, and the unknown. Gentlemen, welcome to our 2022 year in review episode. It's so great to connect with you virtually today. Morning, Patty. Good morning, Patty. It's great to see you. So where are you guys calling in from? I'm at my palatial estate here in uh, Queens. And I'm at home in the Bronx. And I am in sunny Tampa, Florida. <laughs> What's the temperature in New York? I have to ask. Much warmer now than it has been. Yeah. It is uh, oh, yeah. It's presently 22 in the Bronx with a real fill of 12, which is considerably warmer than it has been the past day or two. Well, I'm glad you guys are both indoors right now and able to speak with me about a lot of different things. So let's dive right in. I think right off of the top, we should acknowledge that in September, we changed the title of this podcast. Jason, do you want to talk more about the rebranding? Sure. So when we launched the podcast, uh, I guess late 2018, the mantra optimizing human performance seemed appropriate. It's been one of our, I guess, core mantras for LUF. Certainly in recent years, as we've embraced or have endeavored to advance human performance in tactical industries. But uh, I guess in recent months or years, the mantra is, is kind of felt sterile. And everywhere I look now in like the human performance space, you see optimize, optimize, optimize. And then often when, when you look at it, I don't know, uh, beyond feeling sterile or corporate, you look at what like a lot of these folks are, are offering and it's like advice in the form of sleep more, meditate more, eat better, take cold showers, spend less time on your, on your digital device. And you know, all, all of that is probably consistent with science or what we know to be true about improving the human condition. But a lot of it is um, kind of absent of the fact that we're all people who are living our lives in a way that there's a lot of things competing for our time work, kids, looking out for our parents. It's like a lot of times, I don't know, optimize human performance. It, it uh, I, I kind of felt like it, it just, it just felt sterile. 
and at the end of the day, you know, as a team working with the folks that we do, particularly in the fire service, to a lesser extent, the military and law enforcement, th these are unique people who, who endeavor to advance their capabilities under, under pressure in, in a way that far exceeds their internal or personal interest. You know, in many ways, they're, they're subjecting themselves to greater stress and discomfort, you know, in order to bring comfort to, to others. I thought one of the things that our, our podcast does that I think is unique is provides people a platform to reflect on their own experiences under pressure and to give meaning to those, those experiences. And I, and I think it's like a, it's like a deeply human and, and intimate conversation. I mean, the, the, the extent to which people that come on, like Sean Cullen or Adam Casey, like the extent to which these courageous warriors are, are willing to be kind of vulnerable and, and, and forthcoming and he humanized their, their own experience. That was probably the genesis for the, the shift. The other thing too, is we found like a year or two ago, we had a guy in the FDNY make up some, some t-shirts with the mantra on the front, humanize the narrative. And what I found is when I'd wear it around my neighborhood or the city, like people would stop for a moment and just like, look at it. And you could tell like it resonated with them. Of course, these people, most of them aren't firefighters or certainly not Marines, but it like, it kind of meant something to them. Um, and I think you had Fader on recently for episode 100, which was pretty momentous. He in particular, it's not really a mantra that he, he used, but I, I think that he is in a way that only Fader can, has helped each of us to become better at helping people to humanize the narrative. And I think a lot of the things that we did in 2022, particularly in American Fire Service, as it relates to trying to make sense of line of duty deaths and the sorts of things that happened at these, these complex fires, um, I think in many ways, we're, we're, uh, we're helping the, the American Fire Service to kind of humanize the, those events and, and, and those experiences. Because at the end of the day, you know, less of its own devices, as it relates to the fire service, folks would, would, would lead you to believe that this is a, a scientific in per pursuit or, or a scientific um, activity. And, and, and science certainly gets a vote, right, whether it's how buildings behave or fire behaves. But ultimately, as, as Roussel likes to remind us, this is far more of an applied art th than it is a, a, a strict and, and precise and pure, pure science. And, and for no other reason, it's because humans are, are central to the, to the endeavor that is. So for the time being, it's, uh, it's, it's humanizing the narrative. And I, I think that that is, is a little bit more appropriate than optimizing human performance. Thank you for sharing all of that. Jim, I'm Jimmy, really what do you think? Yeah, I'm really interested in your thoughts on the new mantra. Sure. I, I think it's totally applicable, especially in the very small lane that I occupy, like trying to explain to people what's actually happening to them. Uh, you can equate humanizing the narrative with understanding, providing them an understanding of what's happening to them in those critical moments. Um, so it's totally applicable. And there's so much work to be done in this realm. I hope that we, we stay with it. You speak of wearing the shirts. Um, when I wear them in you know, Greenpoint or Williamsburg, people think it's kind of like a social justice thing, which is okay in its own right, but it's, a, it's an attention grabber, but it's also realistic. You know, when you can explain to people and bring understanding to you know, the unimaginable events that they see and deal with, you are completely humanizing it because at the end of the day, Right, I'll steal a line from Jason. This is a human endeavor. And the better we understand those humans, the better we will be. 
I'm going to share that for me personally, I think that that just says provide context, right? Like Jason had mentioned, we're really trying to look at things holistically. And I think humanize the narrative does that. It provides more context for the entire endeavor. Absolutely. So the breadth of our work expanded this year in several ways. What were some of the projects the team worked on this year that you both feel are noteworthy and are proud of? Jason, do you want to begin or Jim? Yeah, sure. I'll start and then I'll kick it to Jimmy. We helped the, the Cherry Hill, New Jersey Fire Department, which is in southern New Jersey, just across the river from Philadelphia, located in Camden County, New, New Jersey, pretty, pretty squared away um, department. We helped them to come on online in, in 2022 with an optimizing human performance program, which in many ways is modeled after the FDNY's mental performance initiative program. We've run two iterations where approximately 30 members of their department, as well as five members, leaders from the Philadelphia Fire Department have gone through a 40 plus hour immersive course where um, they've received much greater exposure to human performance under, under stress, compliments of contributors from the American Fire Service, the, the military, professional sport, and equally significant academics. So we ran through two iterations. In 2023, we'll, we'll do a third iteration. And then the plan is that in the very near future, they're gonna develop a program that's gonna be sustainable, run largely in-house, with some support from LUF or with contributions from the, the types of folks who contribute to LUF who are not fire service practitioners. So it was pretty exciting to see that program get up and running, in inclusive of folks from uh, Philly. So, you know, I, I think it's one thing for the FDNY to do something on this scale. And in large part, it's a little bit easier for the FDNY to do this because the scale at, at which we, we operate as a department you know, being the largest fire department in the country. But it's, it's pretty cool to see a smaller department that pales in comparison in terms of operating strength, you know, only a few hundred firefighters and fire officers to see value in this and, and to come online. You know, the continued expansion of, of human performance optimization in, in the American Fire Service is, is certainly exciting. There's going to be a few other places that are probably going to follow suit here in the very near future across the United States. So super excited about, about that. The other program, you know, we continued to, to deliver several online leadership development courses, online human performance courses, and we see a continued demand for, for those. And, uh, you know, nothing, no, nothing replicates being together in person, but there is something cool about just being able to log on once a week with like-minded people across, from, across the country, ranging from California to the Pacific Northwest to Alaska to the East Coast and talk and hear from folks like Jimmy or um, Jeff Asinelli, or uh, to unpack a, a book with someone of the likes of, of Jim Roussel, what's cooler than that. So, but along those lines, we did return to the farm this year for the annual leadership development course in, in Western Maryland. It was, we say this every year, but this year was truly the best <laughs> week, we, week we've spent on the farm. And I'm, I'm actually gonna pass the baton I was just going to gonna say, to, this is Jim's Jim like Christmas. To articulate why, <laughs> why, why it was. And I, we, one of the advantages we have with our team is we have a lot of depth and, and there's like no me, there's no I, like it's a, it's a we, it's a team, it's an us. 
but there, there is one individual on our team who you put him into a room and, and the dynamics change and they change in profound ways, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. Um, with that said, I'm going to pass it. I'm going to pass it off to, to Jim and cause I, I, I see him and he's chomping at the bit to, uh, to, to take this. Jimmy, talk about the week on the farm. Again, like Jason said, a really special group. But when you put Jim Roussel sitting in the back, uh, it was the first time I had the chance to spend an extended amount of time with Jim. And what a gift. I mean, he just sees the world from a different perspective. When you, when you combine that from a, a really good group, that is a very special, special week. Uh, I, I would also that we were just recently out in, uh, in the Bay Area with another terrific group. And PK, you talk about leaders of the future, whether it's PK out in Berkeley or Zach down in Cherry Hill. You're talking about Ivy League graduates, guys who, with real vision and who are thinking differently about this profession of ours. I, I could not believe you know, how prepared and professional the folks in the Bay Area were. I mean, they were just engaged the entire time. They came ready to roll. They were sitting with the notebooks out, the pens ready to go, you know, on time, full attention. And what they do, like, sometimes we think, you know, we have the, the handle on everything. I mean, these folks, these fine young men and women, sometimes they're called out to do wildfires for two weeks at a clip. So it, it, it's extraordinary that every group but it's, it's, a, it's a testament to the quality of the people that they're bringing along. And it, it also speaks to that the fire service is in a pretty damn good place. Um, we do not have the monopoly on talent. We do not have the monopoly on people with vision. Um, it's about finding those, those stars, those diamonds in the rough, um, which may have started with MPI, finding those diamonds but they're all over the country and finding them and empowering them and giving them some direction. It was terrific. And it was a, a truly great year. And it was a, it just feels so rewarding when you're dealing with these kinds of groups, whether it's Cherry Hill or in the Bay area. It's so nice to hear such an optimistic outlook. Thanks, Jim. So besides programs, the team contributed to line of duty death reports, particularly in Frederick County. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, pr probably the most significant thing that we did in 2022 that was not anywhere on our radar going into 2022. You know, even as late as late 2021, when we were doing the year in route last year, as we were anticipating and, and kind of planning for probably some of the more important things we would do in the year ahead, this wasn't even even on our radar. The, the fire was certainly you know, we, we were aware of the fact that there had been a fire in the summer of 2021 that had claimed the life of Captain Josh Laird in a rural area of, of Frederick County, Maryland, considerably large private home where, where Captain Laird would, would tragically lose, lose his life. In early January, members of a regional safety committee that was formed and, and convened to investigate the, the fire and, and make recommendations going forward, you know, in, in the interest of, of advancing firefighter per performance, whilst decreasing the likelihood that similar tragedy would ensue in the future. That committee convened 
with folks from several several different departments in the, the Baltimore, Washington metropolitan area, and they had reached out to us in, in hopes that we would we would be able to contribute and offer some subject matter expertise as it relates to human performance at fires and, and emergencies. Yeah, it wasn't lost to me that this was a pretty significant opportunity, even the fact that they were just reaching out for, for us to come down and spend some time with them. And initially going into this, I I wanted to be clear in terms of what, what it was that we were willing to do and could do and what it was that we weren't willing to do and didn't have the ability to do. And we, we didn't want to necessarily or specifically evaluate the performance of those members who operated at this at this fire for a number of different reasons. As cultural outsiders, we, we just don't have a good enough understanding of, of how they, they operate. We don't know of these any of these individuals and none of us were at this fire. So we're, we're at, uh, you know, we would have been kidding ourselves to, to, to be able to come in and provide that service. More broadly, I thought we were in a position where we could spend a day, a long day, helping to advance everyone in the committee's understanding of how firefighters, company officers, and, and certainly incident commanders are impacted physiologically, biologically, cognitively at these types of fires. While also, I, I thought we would be able to offer some cautionary tales or perhaps challenge conventional wisdom that, that is in the American Fire Service um, a lot of times regarding the, the narrative that ensues on the back end of these, these fires. And um, they were receptive to that. I mean, this was, this was their idea. They wanted us to come down. We came down. We spent an entire day with them, did a pretty deep dive. And then we left. Some of the conversation continued. And then they asked if we would be willing to write a chapter in the final report, and my initial instincts were, you know, thank, thank you for the opportunity. We're, we're honored, but we would prefer not. I, I don't necessarily know that we're in a position to, to do that. And they, uh, they, they pressed a bit. I think we're probably thankful that they, that they did. And we responded with, we'll, we'll write something, but it's not going to be exclusively about this fire. I think it's going to be more broadly about these types of fires. Jimmy, Dan, Jake, a number of other individuals spent a lot of time helping to develop this, uh, this essay that, that became a chapter within their report. Um, their report was, was, I think, released in, in August. It happened to align with the, the, the anniversary of the fire. And I got to tell you, that report now is unique. And it's, and it's an important, not, not only because it kind of memorializes the, the life of a, of a committed civil servant who gave his life in service to others, but because for the first time in the history of the American Fire Service, there was considerable attention given to humans. And the report just doesn't exclusively look at how the fire behaved or how the building behaved or what tactics were appropriate and which were inappropriate, which command and control model uh, practices were helpful and which were detrimental. But it highlights how these individuals were, were being impacted, good, bad, and, and ugly. And in a way, I think it, it pays tremendous tribute to not only the, the captain who gave his life, but everyone who operated at this fire. You know, so often when you pick up a line of duty death report and you read it, you're left with the notion that this event, particularly the outcome, was entirely predictable. And then you're left with thinking, well, if it was predictable, then it was also pre preventable. And I, I don't think that that... Uh, I don't think that's the case at, at any of these line of duty yeah. fires. Like people don't know until they, until they know, largely because oftentimes the re report flagrantly 
neglects uncertainty. So the the report was was significant. I think to, you know, there's like a technical piece to this, helping to give these folks a better understanding of performance, helping them to use language that we 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 think is kind of professionally acceptable. But then also there's there's kind of like a therapeutic aspect to all of this too. Like whether you're at the fire or or you, you've been tasked to make sense of the fire in the days, weeks, months, year following, it's a really, really intense and hard, hard experience. And you don't have to have been at the fire to listen to, have to listen to all of the audio transmissions, sit down and do all of the interviews, try to recreate this, try to make sense of, of discrepancies and dis- disparities in, in, in testimony. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very challenging for, for everyone. And people do it because they know morally it's the right thing to, to do. And going back to the, the new mantra of the podcast is like, just as an institution, we've, we've never really embraced the opportunity that was to actually humanize the, the narrative for, for everyone, in, everyone involved, from the most junior member who responded to that fire to the most senior member who operated that fire and might have had similar experiences in the past to the individual who wasn't at the fire but then had the, the moral responsibility right, to go and notify the spouse. The individual has to go in and make hard decisions about, hey, our, our training in this particular area is, is, sub, is suboptimal. You know, it, it, in, in light of what we're learning, we need to improve. Everyone has a role to play. And, and I think it's, it's imperative that we, we do everything we can to kind of humanize it for, for everyone. So, so it was, um, little do we know, I think even, uh, you know, Jimmy was there when we, when we traveled down to Frederick for the day. Little did we know at the time how significant an opportunity. I mean, we knew it was important, but we, I, I don't think we knew the second and third order effects, nor did we know that just days later, there would be a, an equally catastrophic fire in, in West Baltimore that would claim the lives of, of three members, you know, highly, highly experienced members of the Baltimore City Fire Department and uh, hit really close to home to several members of our, of our team. And then because we had kind of developed a process, right, with, with Frederick County, the opportunity then presented itself again in Baltimore. Um, and little did we know, of course, then that, that the New York City Fire Department in the borough of Brooklyn would experience a line of duty fire, uh, you know, very, very challenging, complex fire in, in, in April that would, again, hit close to home for, for members of our, of our team. In some ways, the FDNY would, would then follow suit of what transpired in, in, in Frederick and Baltimore and say, hey, in light of the fact that we've spent so many years giving greater attention to human performance, Maybe it's important that we kind of humanize the narrative around performance at, at this fire. And it's, it's, it's kind of ironic that it started in a place as, as small as, as Frederick County. Uh, like I said, when we started the year, we certainly didn't know. But, but often is the case in the American Fire Service, like it's harsh, but oftentimes tragedy is the catalyst for improvement or like deep and, and meaningful uh, behavioral change. Jimmy, what thoughts might you have? Well, I think uh, you, you were perfect in that description. I would add yet another example of a smaller fire department thinking differently because, again, they have the ability to do so, right? They're the jet skis and that they're willing to, to take a chance on this. And I remember right from the start when this whole endeavor began, I knew that this process was something that was important to you, right? That the line of duty reports... You know, there, were, there were gaps that existed and, and, and needed to be improved. Uh, improved first and foremost to honor the sacrifice 
of those who, who gave it all in, in line of duty, but also to bring a measure of justice, a measure of help uh, and improvement to departments that through the loss that we're actually going to get better. Your sacrifice was not in vain. That's a really important step. And the fact that others are now embracing this means right, change is occurring. And there's nothing wrong with people saying, hey, there is an idea from someone else that's thinking differently. Let's adopt that. Right? That's a sign of growth and humility to say, hey, we don't, we don't have a monopoly on this. That's great understanding. We should follow suit. And it's the perfect way. Because again, line of duty death reports, everyone on the job can tell you what the recommendations were in the aftermath. It's important to say that there should be a measure of, you know, that uncertainty plays a huge role, that memories are impacted and so forth. Uh, that is truly humanizing the narrative and doing so in a way to honor the sacrifice of those who gave all. Well said, Jim. Is there anything else you wanna add before we move on? I, I think it's a nice segue to the, uh, the NIOSH Firefighter Fatality Investigation and Prevention Program reporting paper that, that we drafted and sent to NIOSH and the, the CDC in, in the late summer. So once again, some, something that wasn't on our, our radar going into 2022, uh, somebody sent me a screenshot from a pretty obscure federal government website that was, they were soliciting feedback from fire departments and agencies who shaped the American fire service. Uh, and they were soliciting folks for feedback on how the, the NIOSH line of duty reporting process could be improved. And having kind of in, in, informally explored a, a lot of these, uh, line of duty, NIOSH line of duty reports through a human factors or human performance lens prior to Frederick, but then being actively involved in, in the Frederick County process uh, to the extent, extent we were, and then to a lesser extent in Baltimore, you know, we, we just kind of happened to be in, in, in position then to, to pick up uh, a number of different line of duty reports with maybe, maybe a little more of a, of a keen eye. And like, you know, Jimmy comes back to this, the, the greatest, all the, this notion all the time, but one of the greatest strengths of the LUF team is the depth and, you know, some of the, the, the intellectual firepower that we have and some of the intellectual workhorses that we have on this team who are first and foremost practitioners, but they also are, are nerds who don't mind sitting down and, and, and reading a, a, a lengthy report and trying to identify patterns in it. So what we did was uh, we task organized. And I think initially we picked two dozen different NIOSH line of duty reports that have been published uh, within the past 20 years about structural fires where at least one or in some instances, multiple members were, were, were killed. And we developed this, this survey instrument um, or, or framework. And we really wanted to get a sense to, or an idea to, to what extent did did the reports and the investigations give attention to, to the human factor? And our hypothesis was probably minimally. And then our, our findings were even, even less than we had, had anticipated. And, all, and ultimately, like Jimmy is really good about reiterating this. Look, everyone who's involved in these sorts of things, they, one, they have a hard job. Two, these are really good, good people. 
And um, it's it's not that they're they're being negligent, right, or or in, in intentional in neglecting the human human factor. It's just that I, I think historically, institutionally, they just haven't had the tools to to do so. And um, a large part of the analysis has been predicated on what structural specialists, right? Building construction guys have said, hey, this is how the building behaved or fire behavior guys more recently said, hey, this is how the, the fire building has, or the fire behaved. But by and large, not really much attention to the fact that, hey, these were people do, doing inordinately challenging and complex things under, under pressure. So, you know, when you look at things like aviation, or if you look at like the Federal Aviation Administration, or if you go online and you just Google this, the Sully report from the miracle landing on the Hudson, and you, and you thumb through that re report or scroll through that PDF, you will see much greater attention to, to the human element than historically the, the American Fire Service has, has given. So we spent, I don't know, count, countless number of man hours on this report and uh, or in our initial findings. And I think this is just gonna be a preliminary report we, we sent it to the CDC and NIOSH, but we haven't yet. I don't think we've even yet distributed it within the LUF network. I think it's going to be a really good conversation piece in, in, in light of our findings and where we think we can improve as an, as an institution, you know, the American Fire Service. But our, some of our key findings, and Jimmy had touched on a few of these, one being that the report ne neglects to highlight or, or even consider the impacts of oper operational stress on, on human performance. Two, that the fallibility of human, human memory is disregarded, largely what people say is, is taken at face value and is viewed as being accurate and consistent with what transpired. And that's not necessarily the, the case, in, in, particularly in light of the, the academic research we've done with Columbia University that's highlighted just how fallible our, our memory is, particularly under stress. A third deficiency is that the analysis in each one of these fires begins with the receipt of the alarm. Like there's, there's no attention, no consideration to, you know, who, who these, who these people were prior, what, what experiences they had or didn't have that might've, might've shaped their performance or, or mindset, right. Uh, to what extent relationships influenced fireground performance, no, no attention to, to, to that. Uh, these fires are largely viewed in, in, in isolation from the moment that somebody calls 911 and says my, my house or my apartment's on fire. To the moment the fire is brought under under control, which that that's that's uh, that's unfortunate. Fourth, being a deficiency in the form of the narratives, in 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 causality, fail to distinguish between experience, training, or or the fact it's a uniquely complex predicament, right? So, like I said, these, these fires are all kind of viewed through this same same lens, and there's there's little to no attention to the fact that this particular fire might have been. Uh, might have been particularly unique, or this fire may have been very much routine for this particular fire department or this particular fire officer, but but we we don't know because it's 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 not analyzed. And last, I think this is probably the most significant. It was certainly kind of a driving driving force in in our willingness to contribute to to Frederick. And the fifth deficiency that we highlighted is that outcome bias trivializes fire ground uncertainty and dramatically alters the risk profile narrative. And oftentimes we're left with this narrative that says, hey, this particular firefighter or fire officer, they were, they were operating in a, in a fire building where there, were no, there was no civilian life hazard. And they, uh, they were seriously injured or, or killed. 
and it was a it was a risk versus reward failure. They they gave their lives in service to something a mere piece of property, um, which is a, a pretty de definitive. I don't know. I would say almost like an in, indictment on that individual's de decision making, and to some extent, it's an indictment on the incident commander's character because it suggests that he risked the, the lives of his his men and women unnecessarily or haphazardly. The, the problem with that narrative is it's garbage because at that moment in time, they didn't necessarily, they didn't know what we know now. If you make sense of these events in right to left fashion, you're, you're left with a, with a great misleading sense of like hubris, right? Where you're walking away being like, ah, if I had had this, we would have gotten a different a different outcome because at this particular decision point, instead of going left, we would have gone right. Or at this particular decision point, I would have, I would have backed the, the, the units out of the building. Bottom line is that, that at that decision point, they, they didn't know what you know, you know now. The only way to really make sense of these events is in left to right fashion, right? When, when did they know what they, what they knew, right? It, and at that, that moment in time, how did it impact their, their, their decision-making and, and subsequent actions. From our perspective, that's the most glaring de deficiency. And not only is it unfair from a, from a technical or tactical perspective, but we think it's morally, morally unjust, right, to come in later and to, to offer a, a narrative that says, well, the chief picked the building over his firefighters. No, no. Jimmy and I have worked for some pretty aggressive chiefs, right, right, Jim? We've also worked for some that probably are not aggressive, but we've worked for some really aggressive chiefs. You know, guys like Chief John Stalker come to mind, uh, Battalion Chief Tom R Richardson when he was a battalion chief. Like, these are guys that gave you an opportunity to, to, to play, to win, right? I mean, there was a moment in time where they drew a line in the sand, but, but never on their, never, never would they have ever, you know, picked a, a, a building over the lives of their men. And I've never met anyone that, that would. But unfortunately, in the back end of these events, sometimes that's kind of the, the, the storyline that, that ensues because the people who are making sense of these events just to highlight the deficiency that is the word uncertainty does not exist in these reports it, 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 it's not um and you could say well all right so maybe they use a different word that's synonymous all right unknown does doesn't exist ambiguity it doesn't exist like the, the it's it, it's like we we assume that these guys pulled up had complete information and then navigated you know and endeavored to bring the fire under control and, and we greatly di diminish the, the complexity of the environment that that was not only the environmental uncertainty, but the environmental, the, the uncertainty with each, with each other. How well did the chief know his company officers? How well did the company officers know their, know, know their, know their troops? How much experience, like real world experience, did this particular firefighter have in this type of occupancy under these conditions? We don't know because no one, no one, uh, no one goes there. They do in aviation and they do another number of other industries. And I think that we have, we have an opportunity to move in that direction. And once again, like the, these are, these are all really, really good people who are involved in this endeavor. And it's, 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 it's incredibly difficult uh, intellectually and even more so emotionally. And we think going forward, this framework is just going to allow us to, uh, to, to get better. Jim, would you like Perfect. to add to that? Sure. I would, I would add on to the why, like why would a group do all of this work for people they've never met, for people they've never known, because they're the same as us. Anyone who's willing to risk their life, whether it's you know the glorified big city, but those 
those men and women who, who do this for free, who serve their communities. And I'll take a line right at the intersection of fate and responsibility. Somebody should honor their sacrifice as best possible to learn as much as you can from them. Right? Because there's so much to learn. There's an enormous gap that exists. And on our job, we've learned uh, you know, to, to thoroughly honor those. So let's take this deeper to all of those out there who serve and do the same thing we do, but without the glory of the notoriety, because they deserve it, uh, because they gave all uh, in service to their communities. Jason, you shared the process. Can people view it? Yeah, we have not yet distributed the paper, and it's just our preliminary findings. Um, one of the points of criticisms that or potential points of criticism that we received is maybe the 20 flyers that we examined or the 20 approximately 20 flyers we, we examined are not representative of the larger data set. We pick flyers that we think probably do, but statistically speaking, right, they might not. So we're going to try to build off of that in, in a year, year ahead. And I think there's probably, in addition to sending out the paper, there's probably an opportunity for us to have a conversation one evening via, via Zoom. Um, with a with a, a broader audience of, of leaders from the American Fire Service who are particularly interested in, in this this topic, or maybe even a podcast episode, right? That, that would explore where Jimmy and I could unpack some of our findings, because if you're around this this business long enough, at some point you're going to have um, the burden, right, of of trying to make sense of one of these events, and that burden is also a tremendous privilege and, and honor, right, to tr try to memorialize one of these life-changing and catastrophic events that arguably is something we can also get better from. So um, at some point we're going to, uh, we'll get the, the paper out. We wanted to kind of afford those folks in the federal government, the CDC and NIOSH opportunity to allow things to kind of percolate before we send it out to our, our distribution list uh, and those in the network. But, but at some point we will, and like anything, it's a living document. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the fires that, I mean, there were some really unique fires this, this past year in, in the city of New York, Baltimore, across the country, fires where unfortunately firefighters lost and fire officers lost their lives in there. And there were a number of fires where, you know, folks narrow, narrowly lived to tell the tale. So like anything, we, we would be foolish to offer this as, uh, as, as gospel or a, a definitive position on, on where we're at. We're just, honestly, in many ways, we're just, we're just starting to scratch the, the surface. And we're trying to do, like anything, we're trying to do some, offer something that's, that's consistent with the science, meshes and aligns with our, our, our firsthand experiences. And then um, are, are things that can be replicated by other people, other places. You know, like Jimmy mentioned, Pete K out in, in Berkeley, Zach and Tim Moore, uh, Zach Howe and Tim Moore down, down in Cherry Hill. I think the, the real value is in, is in the process and the conversations and kind of building these relationships out of ahead of time. You know, one of the things that's really significant about LUF is like, we, we don't know in the year ahead who, who's going to find themselves in, in the throes of a, a really messy dilemma or who's going to experience catastrophic loss. But when they, when we build those relationships, like there's somebody in the, in the year ahead who at some point is going to want to pick up, the, there's probably several people, right. who are going to want to pick up the phone and, called Jim Roussel because they, they need to have a conversation with him kind of in an intimate fashion. And they got to know him over the course of the week at the farm. And now they feel, they feel safe, right. Being able to call him knowing that he probably has doesn't have the answers to the test, 
as I like to say, but he know how he knows how the game is played. <laughs> Relationships are foundational to everything that we're thing that we're doing. So far, we've talked about some really major projects with far reaching impact. Another milestone that we hit this year was the podcast published its 100th episode. Congratulations to my co-host. <laughs> Congratulations to our, our producer. I cannot believe that we hit 100 episodes. I just go back to thinking about when you approached me with this idea and feeling so honored, but also scared. <laughs> yeah. I think the most impressive piece of this is that we've never missed a timeline and that's because of you not because of me <laughs> we've never we've, we've never we've, we've never missed a, a deadline we've been very very consistent we've had some uh some close calls but uh we we've probably failed to have, have had as many in the bank as we we, we should at times which we're, we're we're working to get better in in, in that regard no nah, but it's it's really cool i mean if you look at the folks who come on my, my favorite guest are people that are just they're they're quiet professionals to the extent that the people they work with will listen to the episode and be like, dude, I had no idea. I had no idea Sean Cullen's helicopter rolled down the side of a mountain countless times in Afghanistan. I had no idea that Josh Weiner had 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 navigated these these hardships. And it, one is it speaks to the character and, and quiet professionalism virtue that is. In, in these folks who could have all come home and gotten book deals and tried to ink a, a Hollywood movie deal because their, their, their stories are just that incredible and they're just extraordinary people, but they just largely want to just continue to live a life of, of, of service and lead with conviction, but in, in, in largely quiet ways. And two is, I think it speaks to the fact that, uh, I think it speaks to the kind of the environment, the, the culture that we've created with, within the team. Because I know a lot of these people, unless they're on devices, they, they really do not want to come on a podcast or come into a studio and talk about themselves. But I'm going to use some fader speak here, right? We've kind of created some like psychological, like a psychologically safe space where they feel. And the other thing too is, as extraordinary as they are, the themes are are consistent. Right? If you play to win, you 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 lose. If you lose, it sucks. But in an odd way, you're going to learn more about yourself and your teammates than you ever did before. In an odd way, like really good things are going to come out are, are going to come out of this. Like you get to make the decision whether you're the victim or you're a survivor. Relationships are are key. There's a spiritual component to all of this. You know, like in many ways, it's it's as unique as the stories are. There's kind of like there's like kind of like a pattern, right? And I and I think it's it's therapeutic for folks to come on and i think in many ways too the people that largely have not been super candid or forthcoming certainly not publicly about telling their stories it's liberating for them to come out i mean sean cullen went from not ever talking about his story to now really getting up in front of an mpi room and kind of enjoying get, getting to talk about the experience you look around the room and everyone's like wait is this guy serious like this guy's one of our hours and none of us had any idea that that he survived this this insane event but uh yeah congrats on the the, the first hundred and here's to uh to 100 more and the nine the remembering that 9-11 stories are uh they're phenomenal talk about labor of love like a lot of time goes in, into that and part of many many members of the 
the team, but to have people sit down and reflect on who these people that gave their lives in service to our beloved city and nation 21 years ago, and to be able to speak emphatically about how their legacy continue and the people whose lives they continue to impact, despite the fact that they've been gone for 21 years, it's, it's truly, truly pr profound. Jim, do you have anything to add as the host of the Fireside Chat series? Those episodes are phenomenal and obviously so needed. Every time you host a conversation, the downloads are through the roof. And that's a testament to the fact that people want and need to listen to them. Yeah, I, I you know, full disclosure, I still don't really understand this thing, but I think the thrust of this should be for you, right? This was your lane, right? It took a lot of you know, courage for you to say, okay, I'm going to let these guys do it who are not as on time, as not as neat, not all those things. But, you know, this was your baby. And, um, you know, without you, this couldn't happen. And 100 is really cool to have 300,000 downloads on the way to five. Like, that's really cool. So, so for a moment, I know you don't like to do it. You should bask in the glow, man, and say, hey, right, you knocked it down. And, Circling back to the value of the conversations, many of those conversations are reference pieces. You know, I'll talk about Andy a little while, but whether it's Fader, whoever it is, you can go back in time and reflect on those depending on whatever the situation is. That's an incredible resource. And I don't think we fully understand the value of that. We will over time uh, because as time moves on, those conversations will become more valuable because it'll tell generations before, it's not the first time you, anyone's ever been through this. Here's a reference that can help you. So again, congratulations to you and uh, let's keep going. <laughs> now, J Jimmy, Jimmy makes, a, well, two great points. One is so much of the credit for, for the success that has been the, the podcast is a testament to who, who you are, Patty, professionally and, and personally. And you have a, like a lot of different things competing for your time and attention and your, your, your expertise and the fact that you've made the, the podcast a priority, we're forever grateful yep. for, for that. And Jimmy, I, I think raises a, a great point. Like the value of these, these conversations, it's, it's truly in, in, enduring. You know, we, when we launched the podcast, I was recently married. I had no kids. I was a firefighter and rescue too. Fast forward, you know, four years later, two kids married right? Like now I'm a fire officer. Life is similar, but it's a little bit more, more involved. And it's a little bit more, a little bit more messy, largely in a good way. But I'm able to go back to listen to some of these, these episodes and they, it's like picking up a war fighting. You know, it, it meant something to me as a Lieutenant it meant something even more to me as a, as a, as a captain, even more now as a, as a terminal major. But when I read our boy, right. Reading John, John Boyd's book or some of the classics, right. You, you, like it's not a one and done thing. And a lot of, a lot of these conversations, there's so much depth. Um, and these people, because they're so candid and forthcoming and for lack of better words, vulnerable, there's just great value in that. Being able to go back year, years later and, and listen and, and certain things that resonated with you before will resonate with you again. And then other things uh, that maybe didn't resonate with you four or five years ago, or you, you'll find particularly uh poignant and every single individual who we've had on like despite the fact that they're all quiet professionals they they're just incredibly encouraging 
Like you, you get done with the episode and you're like, all right, what, what can I do today to, or this week to make myself a better person? And, and uh, I, I love that about the, uh, the, the platform. Well, I just want to say thank you both for those compliments. I'm going to accept them with grace, even though <laughs> I want to, you know, just kind of put the spotlight back on you and the team and our guests. But I take this opportunity so seriously. You know that. I feel like a responsibility whenever somebody comes on and shares their story or their life's work and it's something that I am so personally grateful for and it enriches my life. Jason, you use the word enduring and I believe that's certainly true about storytelling. It's very intuitive for me. I know that there's a whole science behind storytelling and how important it is for learning, but this is just what I've been doing with my life and my career. It feels very purposeful. And I've shared this with the both of you I found out later in life, after I started my career as a journalist, that I have people, ancestors, who, you know, one was a Civil War correspondent, and then another one was an editor for the Newark Ledger and worked for Gordon Bennett. Like, I have a lot of ties to this work, and it's very natural for me. So I'm happy that we all aligned, and here we are. Awesome. Amen. Is there anything else you want to add? Patty, can we circle for one? You you had on the end others. Oh, yeah. So down at the farm, um, I had a chance to meet yet another uh, member of the Baltimore Fire Department. And after I, Jason and I, we, after we did our pieces and we talked about, you know, the memory piece and, and the, the fallibility of memory, he actually pulled me aside and said, thank you, like that this brought a measure of comfort to him as he was trying to piece together the, the sheer insanity of the unimaginable, that loss. And I was absolutely floored. Like, sometimes you look at this work and it's kind of wonkish, if you will. But the fact that this helps somebody as they're trying to piece it together was an unbelievable. I was like so stunned. And, and like very rarely do you get a chance like to impact somebody like that and, and to help them. And, um, you know, I think that's like the high, you know, you know, I don't want to call anything related to a death a highlight, but very rarely do you get that feeling. And it also like begs the question, maybe we should make this kind of understanding available to more folks who suffer these unimaginable losses. Because in the immediate aftermath, there are so many things that their, their brain is trying to juggle and trying to piece together that it might provide a measure of comfort for them as the twisting and turning, trying to figure it out. I guess it's one of those rare intersections where obscure science has relevance and meaning to people. And to me, that was like, like the best part of the year. That was a great event to begin with, but to help someone, which is our calling in this you know, this LUF endeavor, to me, that was, uh, that was a really great experience. I'm grateful that you shared that. Thank you. Switching gears, as always, I'm interested to know what each of you learned this year or changed your position on, especially as we transitioned into more in-person events and expanded programs. Jim, would you like Jimmy. to go first? I learned I, I don't know as much as I think I need to know as one. 
also, Jason and I had this position that in 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 really high stress situations, if firefighters may not be able to depress their um, their emergency buttons, and it appears, and again, I'd like to look more into the data, but it appears that our position may not hold up. If that's the case, that's fine. Uh, that's the value of learning, right? You don't have a, a monopoly on that. And I think we're, we're learning more, truly learning about what, what happens to people when they're in the dark with no vision. That's a game changing, that's a game changer, right? One of the most important things that we do is when you enter, enter an apartment, enter a, a private dwelling, you're looking for life. And it's quite possible that, that we now are on the cusp of really better understanding what's happening to them and help and being able to potentially give them tools to help them improve that task, to help them improve the probability of saving lives. That's an extraordinary uh, possibility. Having in, an impact on who lives and dies is normally the divine and exclusive providence of God himself. <laughs> This, you know, it's, again, another application of doing this sometimes obscure stuff. And we're really on the cusp of now getting, gaining a really good understanding of this and being able to translate it so that people can train better, more effectively. Jason? I think when I reflect back on 2022 in terms of what we learned kind of as a team collectively about performance in high risk and, and lethal environments. Um, it, it truly was the, the, the year of, of data. And what I, mean, what I mean by that is two areas in particular, physiological biometric data, right? Or biometric data that captures the, the demand on, on the body and, and mind, both from physical exertion, but probably more importantly, significantly emotional or, or mental uh, ex exertion. And the second area being what we've termed kind of the term, the citizen effect, the proliferation of, of data from, from flyers and emergencies at this point in time, particularly in urban, urban America. So I'll, I'll kind of unpack both of those and then try to connect the significance of them, though on the surface, they look different. We had had a pretty good foundation by which we were able to quantify and qualify the demands and rigors on the mind and body at fires and, and emergencies going into the year. And this, this, this particular year, uh, like I said, there was, there were a slew of really complex fires, certainly here in New York, but, but other places as, as well. Some that gained notoriety in large part because unfortunately a, a, a member was was killed. Others that uh, gained no notoriety, despite the fact that several members were probably in in severe distress and, and peril. But because the outcome was was favorable, uh, not too many folks are walking around with a slide, right, or a mental model of what transpired at that event. But we we have an increasing number of of individuals wearing these devices that are wearing them religiously, and they have a baseline. You know, data without a baseline um, is, is uh, you know, data, data point really is of, of, of little to no value. But this past year, collectively, not only here in New York, but in other places along the eastern seaboard, out in Milwaukee, uh, farther out west, we have, we have data from fires 
where people made extraordinary grabs and rescue. Uh, we have data from fires where members were in distress and the situation was, was, was resolved uh, favorably. We have data from fires where conditions changed rapidly and firefighters were seriously injured or killed. Um, and we have data from fires that were, are, were arguably probably some of the most, one in particular, one of the most significant historic conflagrations in recent history, recent being decades. And we have data from these, these fires. And not only do we have data from these fires, but the individuals whose biometric data we have, we have data from dozens and in some instances, north of hundreds of other fires where they operated at. So we know what their baseline is. And to be able to further advance our understanding and kind of highlight the extent to which we're, we're being impacted. I mean, the notion that a firefighter can go to a fire and this individual could be potentially the 70 or 80th firefighter to walk into a fire building and operate as a third alarm firefighter and generate data that is comparable to an NFL quarterback who's playing in, in, the, in the postseason in a high stakes game is, is extraordinary, right? And tremendous leverage for, for the American Fire Service, right? Because it, it, you, you walk away saying, wow, if that's how, if that's how we're being impacted and, and tested under pressure, then shouldn't we have better everything? Training, equipment, pay, <laughs> benefits, right? We'll kind of stop there or else the union guy's gonna, gonna steal the mic back from <laughs> right? And beat, beat the drum, but the drum needs to be, needs to be beaten. And, and um, no, nah, it's just extraordinary. And then you take that and then you say, all right, well, like, all right, so this is just your, your data that tells you, tells us how your, you know, what your heart rate, how your heart rate and heart rate variability and respiratory rate was, was being impacted and how recovery looked like in the days following. That's one piece. What else do you got? Well, I, I got video. What do you mean you got video? Yeah, I got video. Video from who? A hipster standing outside of, of the fire building filming it. Or actually, we have 20 different videos from 20 different vantage points. That's compelling. What else do you got? Oh, we got audio. I can listen to the audio, my, my audio trans transmissions. Like all of these layers. You know, it used to be, and I haven't been on the fire department very long. I mean, not nearly as long as, as Jim, right? But in the early years of my career, when you would come into work, you would, one, have to ask guys any workaround. And then they would say, yeah, we had a job. And you'd be like, well, tell me about it. And if you were lucky, they would tell you about it. One, one person's account. That's all you had. And then years later, you're like, all right, you come into work. Hey, I know there's a fire today because somebody posted on the buff chat or on Facebook. Like, what was it? Ah, it was, wasn't much. Oh, it was actually a really, really good job. Well, tell me about it. Like now you can walk into the firehouse and you honestly don't need this. First of all, you don't need to say, is there any work around? Because you're not fooling anybody guys guys know that you 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 know whether there's been fires but now you can walk in and you already have a you already have a competitive advantage in knowing what that fire might have been like because there's probably video that's available and then you sit down with a guy you're like dude quietly right like hey let me see your let me see your data wow that's extraordinary data what was going on oh this is where actually where i got turned around a little bit oh yeah i got turned around like yeah man it was nothing more than a private house and i got i got turned around a little bit right and like so you're able to have these really meaningful, in-depth conversations, and you're you're really able to. I don't want to overstate this, right? Because nothing nothing replicates firsthand experience, and a lot of times, if you didn't experience something firsthand, there, there's there's an illusion that we would have performed as well as everyone else, and probably better, 
right? That's that's a, a very dangerous illusion that we're that we're all at times uh, susceptible to falling prey or or trapped to. But that said, you can literally mentally, cognitively, even emotionally go to fires that you you, you didn't have the have the luxury of going to with the video, with the biometric data, with with the audio. And I think going back to the line of duty fires is we'll take one fire where that ended in tragedy and we'll spend a year as an institution drilling into it and unpacking it and then kind of like reconstructing it, right? And then that fire becomes the definitive fire that was. Then people will say, well, this extrapolate what happened here to every other fire. In the past year, the New York City Fire Department responded and operated at 2,000 working fires. 2,000. Only one gets through a scrutiny analysis. What if that fire was not representative of the other 1,999 fires? What if it was? We don't know. Right? And that's a whole different conversation there. But on, a, on an individual unit level, we're all walking around with these uh, computers in our, in our pocket. And they do extraordinary things. Right? And... You know, they also do things that aren't the least bit helpful to, to human performance. But I think we're living in the era of, of Moneyball in the American Fire Service, particularly in urban America, with the proliferation of, of biometric data and video and audio, you name it. We, we have the ability to observe and evaluate virtually every fire where members operate. The question becomes is, are we doing it? And I don't mean at the individual unit level or the organizations that have these tools available to them, are they making use of them? And if we're not, it's unfortunate because I know who did Sandy Alderson and Sandy Alderson, you could say, well, Sandy Alderson never made a hallway. No, he didn't, but he, he, he reformed the American pastime and said, anything that's a data point, that's going to offer me a, a, a better understanding of how my people function under pressure is a data point that I want. And the more data points that are available, then the more predictive I can be in evaluating whether or not this individual is gonna help me win or what strategies or tactics or techniques will increase the likelihood that we, we win. In order for them to do it, they had to have had you know, significant financial re resources and had, to have spent considerable sums of money. Largely today, we, we, we don't. And a lot of this stuff is publicly publicly available. The question then becomes, are organizations using it? Are, are, they, are they collecting it? Are they archiving it? Are they observing it? Are they you know, seeking to identify patterns? And they're looking at timestamps. You know, when's the first line of operation? When's water on the fire? How many radio transmissions are there? These are all data points. And I, I'll, get off my, uh, I'll get off my era of Moneyball soapbox because it, it probably is a, is a standalone podcast conversation or maybe a, a, a Zoom conversation with members of the LUF network that are interested in this sort of stuff. But there are two, there are two individuals who, who I think within the FDNY have kind of set the bar for, for, for what can be or have highlighted or demonstrated what can be in the American Fire Service. And that's Cousins Quinn, Matt, Matt and Danny Quinn. And they both have worked in arguably busy, busy shops. They both experienced guys. They're, they're, they're both particularly smart. One has like a thousand pound brain is an Ivy League Ivy League guy, one a little less, a little more unassuming, but but equally intellectually inclined. And they've taken, I mean, you talk about collecting data from dozens of fires where members in, are in distress. And what's what's the, probably the most fascinating 
aspect of is the data when they collected it, collated it, organized it, and then sought to kind of make sense of it. A lot of things that were, a, a lot of the, the takeaways are, are entirely counterintuitive. Kind of the trends and patterns that are, that are at play at these types of fires where members are in, are in distress. A lot of the things that you think would happen don't happen. A lot of things that you think wouldn't happen happen where you're sitting there and being like, wow, that, that actually is entirely counterintuitive, but the data is so compelling and it's not one fire. It's not two fires. It's dozens of fires, thousands of transmissions where these, these two gentlemen have spent hundreds, probably North of that hours of their, 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 their personal time. They've kind of showed us what, what can be. And then what's really significant is then the organization has said, okay, this data set, right? Information is so compelling. Then perhaps we change we change behavior. And then you take their data, right? Their analysis, and it overlays with what we know to be true or largely think we know to be true about human performance under stress. And like, hey, at this point in time, this individual is likely here on the curve or is going to be here on the curve. And that's why we should probably expect less of this individual and not more. Or here's a, here's a scientific explanation for why this individual might do this under pressure or might not do this under pressure. And they connect, they, they connect it back to the guys like Jimmy and, and Andy, and it truly like you're sitting in your room and you're like, we've, we, we have ushered in collectively, right? These sorts of people we have, we have ushered into play the money ball era of, of, of baseball. Like I saw Sandy Alderson recently and I'm like, I just said, it's, it's happening, man. Like it's, I wish you could come and see and help us take it to the next level. Where can we go with this? And we're doing it in a, in a fashion, speaking to what Sandy was instructive about is do not threaten culture, Right embrace the culture figure out what got, what resonates with guys well you know what resonates with guys and gals they all want to be better they want to be better firefighters right and they want to be better firefighters who then have an increasingly likely odds that at the end of the tour they're despite the fact that they're they're uh, mission oriented that they're that they're going to go home and that's kind of like the connecting uh that's that's the common theme but it's uh it's exciting. We're going to build off of it in the year ahead. And like the proliferation, like I said, the proliferation of, of video that's available coupled with, uh, with biometric data. It's an exciting time to, to have a uh, skin in the game. Wow. <laughs> Hello listeners to hear the remainder of this conversation. Tune in to our next episode, which is scheduled to publish on Thursday, January 12th, 2023. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe, leave a comment or rate us and share it. On behalf of the Leadership Under Fire team, have a happy new year. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.